Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What up, Cavs Nation? I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and I'm back with another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. What up, Chris? Ethan, how's it going, man? Man, I'm happy to have you back on the pod, especially because we've got a lot to discuss today. Yep, sure do. We've got to start with a growing rivalry that could be must-see TV for years to come. Evan Mobley and Victor Wembanyama faced off for the first time, and it was even better than advertised. Donovan Mitchell mentioned post-game that Wemby could be the face of the league in a few years, and if not the face, then among the faces in the league. Coming into Saturday's matchup, I was extremely excited to see how these two players, who have similar potentials and definite franchise player caliber stock, would match up. But it started with Jared Allen guarding Wemby. And as I thought would happen, if this was how J.B. Bickerstaff and the Cavs started the defensive scheme, Wemby pulled J.A. out to the perimeter where he's not as comfortable and went to work. When Evan switched on to him, it became slightly more difficult because not only could Evan keep up with Wemby on the perimeter, but he was able to meet him at the rim as well. It was talked about that Evan wanted to make a statement in the matchup and going off for a career high in three pointers made with three, which is more than he had the entire season entering the game, and a 28 point double double with 10 boards. He did exactly what he had set out to do, Chris. How nutty was this matchup in person? And what did you take away from it? Yeah, I just think the thing that I took away from it, and I was talking to somebody on the the media row that was sitting along with me, just you have two guys who are both seven feet tall, Wemby 7'3", that just don't like move the way that you would expect guys that size to move. There's a level of mobility, fluidity, athleticism, and skill set too. Like these are skilled, coordinated bigs that do things that not everybody their size in the NBA can do. And it's what makes them so unique. And it's why people have been using the label unicorn with Evan Mobley. And it's why people use the word alien when it comes to Victor Wembanyama. Because you just don't see guys this size with such great skill, grace, fluidity, mobility, athleticism. It was really, really fun to watch them. Obviously, there is a difference, though. Evan has a little bit more polish, right? He's got a little bit more seasoning. He's got a little bit more maturity. Wemby is still just 19 years old. He's a rookie in the NBA. 
He's going through this for the first time. He's trying to figure out how to get through the grind of this lengthy season while also adjusting to what NBA caliber defenses are going to throw at him and all these different things. So I think you could kind of see some of that in the matchup as well. But just seeing those guys go at it in person, it was a nice reminder to me and I think Cavs fans that like, look, Wemby is a guy that everybody is talking about and rightfully so. Wemby is a guy who is the first overall pick and rightfully so. But Evan Mobley is not somebody that fans should take for granted or start thinking is suddenly replaceable because the things that he does on a nightly basis, on a possession to possession basis, to impact games is something that few players his size and his age are able to do. Yeah, and JB mentioned before leaving for the road trip that they wanted Evan to start taking those three-pointers, Chris, the range of four to five a game, and we had clearly seen him working on them leading to this return and definitely since being back. You were skeptical of the possibility of him taking that many threes, Do you think the Spurs game was an outlier or do you think Evans game could finally be adding a shot to his arsenal? Because if he's able to spread the floor while playing alongside Jared Allen, especially on the defensive end, I think it could take the Cavs to new heights. So I just have to say he took three. He did not take four or five. He took three. So it's a little bit different. No credit to him for making them too. They look confident. The release was higher. The arc was higher. I think part of the reason why the arc was higher was because Wemby is so long (laughs) and he's capable of blocking shots that Evan almost can't shoot the normal way that he does. And I think that might have helped him a little bit. So it's something for him to consider moving forward. Just pretend like Wemby is closing out on his three-pointer every time he hoists. I think also part of it, Ethan, was the way that the Spurs elected to guard the Cavs. Like, they did not guard Evan on the perimeter at all. They were okay with him being out there. They didn't guard George Niang on the perimeter at all. They were packing the paint, and they were trying to take away, it seemed like, trying to take away driving lanes, trying to take away the lobs, too, especially because Jarrett got so many of those in the first half, so they started making a bit of an adjustment there. But I do think, like, the challenge for opposing defense is the same one that San Antonio faced last night, especially if Evan is going to shoot with confidence from the perimeter. And it doesn't even have to be three-point shots. He stepped into a 70-footer with real good confidence. He was facing up against one of his defenders, and he just pulled the trigger like it wasn't an afterthought this time. So Sacramento, Washington, some of these other teams on the schedule coming up, if Evan is going to be this level of threat on the offensive end and J.A. is going to continue to play as well as he has offensively, it's a predicament for the opposing defense because opposing defenses are going to want to, obviously, stay connected to Max Struess and Sam Merrill. They're going to want to shut down driving lanes from Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland, and they're going to focus so much of their attention on those guys. And I think... If the Cavs' main guys are going to get that level of attention from a defense, it can create more opportunities within the offense for Evan. And it's just kind of like a byproduct of how the defense chooses to defend the Cavs. And the beauty of the Cavs, Ethan, this is something that we've talked about throughout the course of this run. It's a diverse offense. It's more unpredictable on the offensive end. So it's not a steady diet of one thing for the opposing defense, and they're constantly having to make these difficult decisions of what they're going to try and take away from the Cavs. 
Yeah, and we've mentioned like Evan Mobley being a quote-unquote non-shooter because up until this point, up until his return, he was a non-shooter. Because he took 10 threes in the first 20-something games <laughs> and very few, very few attempts outside the paint, too. Yeah, exactly. He had a bad percentage from outside five feet. So to say that he could evolve into a not non-shooter, which was the main issue on the offensive end for having Jared and Evan in the paint, clogging up passing lanes, clogging up driving lanes, all of those things, that creates so many more opportunities because not only can you do a screen with Sam Merrill to create a shot for him, but you don't have to necessarily have Evan Mobley then go into the paint. He can then pop out into the corner or wherever it might be and open up a shot for himself. And especially like Chris has mentioned, if the defense isn't guarding him and they're like, why is he screening and then rolling to the three-point line? You're freaking seven feet tall. Then they're like, oh, well, you just have to find out. Yeah, I mean, you can do some more pick and pop stuff. You can do some DHO stuff where you fake the DHO to Max Struess and he just pulls it the way that Bam Adebayo does sometimes or Jokic does sometimes. It's really, really exciting to think about the potential of that down the road. And look, Ethan, there are people inside the organization that have said multiple times, if Evan Mobley gets a three-point shot, if he gets a reliable perimeter jumper, it's over for the rest of the league. Now, that's obviously hyperbole, but what they're saying is he becomes and the Cavs become so much more difficult to guard that it's very, very difficult. Like if you remember early in LeBron's career, right, not to draw this comparison or anything like that, but early in LeBron's career, there was a specific scouting report, go under screens and kind of dare him into jump shots. And look, it's LeBron. So he has very few weaknesses. But That's what teams were willing to give up because like at some point you understand that the guy is a great player and he's probably going to get his, but you try and make it as difficult as possible. You try to pick the best of all these bad options. So if Mobley all of a sudden gets a reliable perimeter shot, then like the way that teams are guarding him and guarding the Cavs is going to be forced to change. The scouting report is going to change. And now all of a sudden, Like if teams are going to hug up on him out on the perimeter and they're going to respect that shot, then he can put it on the deck and he can blow by because he's quicker, he's more athletic, he's got the length and the bounciness to get all the way to the basket. And it just not only does it change the math, but it changes the look of this entire offense. And now all of a sudden, like your fourth shooter, we talk about these four shooter lineups. And again, this is down the road when it comes to Evan, but that's what we're talking about. He becomes part of the four shooters surrounding the one big and your fourth shooter in any particular lineup just so happens to be perhaps the most impactful defender in the entire NBA as well, as opposed to, you know, George Niang. Yeah, that's nasty. Four shooter lineup with Evan Mobley, seven footer, nasty. But okay, when looking around the league, With players continuing to grow in size, but maintaining guard-like skills that we've mentioned, I wanted to get your take on who you'd rather build a team around for the foreseeable future. If you had to pick between these three young players, Victor Weminyama, Chet Holmgren, and Evan Mobley. I know we mentioned these three at an abundance earlier in the year but I think Evan's potential shot development warrants this conversation. Yeah, so it does warrant the conversation, 
but like Chet is already a better, more polished offensive player than Evan because he has a more reliable outside shot, right? He came into the NBA that way. And there's just no guarantee that Evan gets to that level of a shooter that Chet already is or that Wemby already is. We can sit here and we can try and project, right? And we can say that we see evidence of it. And there are reasons to believe with his ridiculous work ethic and just the form that he shows in other aspects of his game that it's going to happen. But we just don't know that. Like, not everybody gets better at their flaws. You know what I mean? So because Chet is already such a reliable shooter, and I think he's got more to his offensive game, and the same thing when it comes to Wemby, like, those two guys are either on the same level with Evan on the defensive end of the floor or close enough to Evan that I can't possibly put him in front of either Wemby or Chet. Not at this point. I haven't seen enough consistently on the offensive end and when it comes to that outside shot from Evan to make me go that direction. But he's trending that way. There's no doubt about it. So I guess then the pick is between Victor and Chet. Yeah, I mean, I think it's Wemby number one, I think it's Chet number two, and I think it's Evan number three, and that's no knock on Evan. This is like the MVP conversation all over again. Like, somebody has to go third on this list, right? And then somebody has to go second on this list. But that doesn't mean that if a team were to construct their franchise around any of those guys, that they would be making a bad decision. How would you rank it? No, 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 no. But we've done this. We've done this already. We've done this already. I want to see like how much you've changed based on what you've seen from Evan Moore. At the beginning of the season, we both had Evan at three just because of the offensive value that Victor and Chet hold. And I think I said Chet at one early in the season. But I think just watching Victor go to work and the lesser minutes that he's playing, especially being in San Antonio, like he's having the same season offensively that Chet is having. I think Chet is shooting a little bit better field goal percentage wise, but like it's scary to think about what he would be getting if they were having the same minute. So I think I'm going to have to change it to Victor, Chet, and Evan, one, two, three. But I honestly do think that the opportunities that the Cavs have with Evan on the perimeter will be better than what Chet and Victor have because Victor and Chet are one, two, if not the number one player on their team. Obviously, OKC has Shea Gilgis Alexander, so Chet's number two on that list. I think he's number three behind Jalen Williams, too, who's had a really, really good year. Yeah, fair enough. I will give you that. But I think that those two guys get more attention than Evan does on the offensive end, as we saw in San Antonio. So I think the possibility for Evan to grow offensively and grow into that will be an easier transition if his shot continues to be consistent because there are so many other weapons that the Cavs have that other defenses will be honing in on, like you mentioned earlier. And I think if he continues to do what he's been doing, I mean, been doing one time having three threes in a game, but if he's able to have consistent three, four, five shots in a game from beyond the arc or from mid-range, and that's the other thing. We're not talking about just three-pointers for Evan. No. I'm talking about like 10, 15 feet, being able to drive to the basket. Like you've seen him bring the ball up a multiple amount of times, but then you look across and you hear Victor saying, well, I've been told that I can play the one. Right. And he can. Like his handle is ridiculous. 
Man, he did a sham god to the rim from the free throw line. I know. He also did like a series of crossovers and then went step back to his left over Jared Allen. I was like, wait a minute. What? That's a center? That's a seven foot three guy who just did that? That's Steph's move. It was unbelievable. I envy you to be able to watch that in person. Ethan, you know the other thing that stands out too about Wemby? And and I don't think like this can be said enough. The San Antonio roster stinks. Like there are not a lot of high level NBA players on that roster at the moment. And like for him to be able to be this impactful on such a bad team where he commands all of the attention from the opposing defense. So many eyes focused on him. So many bodies going toward him wherever he goes. It's not like he can just play off of Donovan Mitchell or play off of Darius Garland, or it's not like he can play off of Shea Gilgis Alexander or Jalen Williams. Like, it's him, offensively and defensively. He is the system at both ends. And for him to still be this level of productive, and it's not translating to wins because wins and losses, that's a reflection on the team. It's not going to translate to wins because the whole of San Antonio is not good enough for it to translate to wins. But for him to be this level of productive and impactful, despite the level of attention that he commands from the opposing team, and despite the fact that like they tried this weird point Sohan thing at the beginning of the year where Wemby wasn't even playing with a natural point guard that could actually get him the basketball and create easier opportunities for him. That, to me is incredibly impressive and it's probably going to benefit him greatly as he continues to move forward and just think about what he can then become if one day he plays with a point guard like Darius Garland or Shea Gilgis-Alexander that can set him up so that he doesn't have to be the initiator and the finisher. He can just focus more on being the finisher. Two points off of that because there's like a meme from the NFL like if there's a top-rated receiver like Tyreek Hill, like with Patrick Mahomes and Tua Tagovailoa, like you're like, oh, he's out there somewhere. I'm gonna just throw it. But like the Spurs right, yeah. are like, dude, you have somebody that's literally like at any point is able to get yes. to the rim if you just throw yes. it up there. And there's been multiple times where you've seen videos where they've just neglected to do that in situations where it was simpler rather than not to just give Wemby the ball and throw it up and make him make a play. And we've seen that he's athletic enough to do that. Like, that's not something that it would be foreign to him. But I also wanted to make the point, like, Wemby has been probably, no, he's definitely been the most highly sought after recruit, most watched on a national level since LeBron James. And to be very fair, like it doesn't feel like anything's phased him. We've talked about the offense and defense. We've talked about the game portion of it, but just outside of it, the way he's handled everything. And I never thought that anybody gave LeBron James enough credit because he's never had a slip up. He's never had done anything wrong in his career or whatever. Outside of basketball, you can criticize his moves inside of basketball however you want to. But Wemby in his first year feels like he has handled every situation, handled the national spotlight, handled the offense and the defense, handled all of these things with grace and with the opportunity to fail in multiple different capacities. And it feels like he might be the one person that you think of that LeBron was expected to be great. And if he wasn't great, then he was a bust. It feels like Victor's that same caliber player. And you can't consider him a bust because of how much he's playing. And you cannot do that when it comes to just comparing the Spurs roster. Because it really feels like the beginning of the Cavs, when LeBron was in 
Cleveland with people that could not be named today and took them to the finals and those kinds of things. Obviously, Wemby's not going to do that, but the ability to lift a team without having surrounding support is something that it feels like Wemby is able to do, even if he gets one player. Like LeBron had Ilgowskis. Like that was his one player that people can name. But until Wemby gets that player, who knows? It could be Trey Young at the trade deadline. But I feel like he has the potential to gravitate a team to newer heights. And like he's doing it all the right ways, even when he's the most watched person in the league. Yeah. And I think given where Evan is at his stage of development, especially on the offensive end of the floor, and we talked about it, it's not to the same level as Wemby right now. It's not to the same level as Chet. Having Darius Garland, having Donovan Mitchell, having a more seasoned, more mature Jared Allen keeps Evan from having to be such a focal point on the offensive end of the floor. Because I think if the Cavs were forced to make him the focal point on offense or build this thing around him specifically or solely, then I think it would be tougher on him. And I think some of like his flaws would show up more consistently. But now some of those flaws can be masked a little bit based on his usage, based on his touches, based on the defenders that he's able to go against because some of the better defenders are occupying either Jarrett or they're crashing toward the lane to try and slow down Darius or Donovan. And even though like Evan hasn't in some ways been unshackled, like I don't think offensively he's ready to be unshackled to that level. And I think this is probably the right situation for him to continue to develop those aspects of his game before having to really, really tap into them in in a different kind of way and in a way that we're seeing Wemby forced to this early in his career. Okay, Chris, I think we need to move on from this topic because we got some other stuff to touch on. I just wanted the last thing I want to say is we have to remember Victor Wembanyama is 20 years old. He just turned 20. January of this year. Insanity. But speaking of players who have helped Evan Mobley become who he can be, I touched on this briefly earlier today, and I think it's gaining more wind as he continues to show his dominance as a force in the front court. But Jared Allen has been everything the Cavs have needed him to be this year. Last week was a rough one for him. He was sick, was only able to have a sandwich for a whole day leading up to a game, but played injured his ankle against the Grizzlies, but still managed to play against the Spurs in the next game. What have you seen from him in stepping into this role of being, to me, the backbone for the Cavs? Because a lot of times, players say that they can look to Jarrett for help in almost any situation. And of course, Donovan Mitchell is the face of the team and has grown as a facilitator and defender this year. And even he's been out at points and the team has leaned on Jarrett in his absences. And Jarrett's only missed five games. And they were all at the start of the season due to his bone bruise, which people called him soft for. But I think he's quieted those notions quite dramatically as of late. The way that I phrase it, Ethan, is that Donovan is currently the best player on this roster. He's the lone representative in the All-Star game at this point. He's in the MVP conversation. Evan Mobley is the most important player to the future of the Cavs, and I think he, more than anybody else, controls their ultimate ceiling and whether they become more than just a contender, like whether they become championship level the way that the Boston Celtics, Milwaukee Bucks, Denver Nuggets, and some of those other teams are. So 
Evan, to me, is the most important moving forward, but the most currently indispensable is Jared Allen. They function completely different at both ends of the floor. If Jared is not out there, or if Jared's limited in any way, or if Jared's just not fully engaged, they're a completely different team. And the numbers back that up, and they've backed it up since he arrived from Brooklyn in one of the great heists of of NBA history with the Cavs getting Jared Allen for basically nothing, at least in Cavs history, one of the great heists in Cavs history. So like, to me, it's a reminder of just how important he is to the success of this organization and how he more than anybody else, Ethan, has transformed this organization. Like, Things changed for them, yes, when Evan Mobley was drafted number three overall, yes, when Darius Garland took his star turn, yes, when Donovan Mitchell arrived in a blockbuster trade. But before any of that happened, Jarrett came from Brooklyn and gave the Cavs an identity. Offensively, they became an elite pick and roll team, and defensively, they've been one of the best teams in the entire NBA, with him as the anchor of the defense, with him as the spokesperson of the defense, with him being able to guard inside and outside. And I just think too many people got down on Jarrett too quickly because he had one bad playoff series in a bad matchup against the New York Knicks. And like so many people wanted Jarrett to work on this, 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 and this and come back a different kind of player. And like all of the things that seem to be problematic for him, and this remains to be seen because he's going to be judged by the postseason, just like the Cavs are going to be judged by what happens in the postseason. But it seems like all of the things that were problematic for him in that playoff series against the Knicks, he addressed this offseason, he made himself a better player. And he is not the same guy that was pulverized on the glass by Mitchell Robinson, Isaiah Hartenstein, and Julius Randle. He is a better version of the player that the Cavs had in the postseason last year. And I'm very, very excited to see how like the growth that he has already shown and the evolution that he's already made. I'm really excited to see how that manifests itself in a seven-game playoff series. Because I think he's more ready for what the playoffs are all about than he was last year. Physically and mentally. All right, Chris, we're going to take a quick break, but I got to put our subscribers on to something new. For our listeners, if you like food and drinks, and who doesn't, Cleveland.com is breaking new ground with our lively new podcast about dining and drinking in the greater Cleveland area. The hosts talk about the latest foodie happenings, joined by the most in-the-know experts in town. It's called Dine, Drink, C-L-E. And you can find it anywhere you download podcasts. Give it a listen, quench your thirst, and feed that appetite. When we come back to the Wine and Gold Talk podcast, we're going to discuss the Eastern Conference and what Donovan Mitchell has brought to this organization. But before then, become a Cavs insider and interact with me and Chris by subscribing to Subtext. Chris, let the fans know what they get from you when it comes to Subtext. Yeah, they get stuff that other people don't get. They get inside information, they get news, they get analysis, they get speculation, they get things that I hear, things that I see behind the scenes that don't make it to other platforms. Like, yeah, some of that stuff I have to write for cleveland.com and it makes its way into my stories. And some of that stuff makes its way onto X, formerly Twitter. But Cavs insiders get it first and sometimes they're the only people that get it. For example, 
you know, I went into the Cavs locker room before last night's game against San Antonio. I saw that Jared Allen had finished conducting his pregame workout. I followed him into the locker room. We talked a little bit about random stuff, including which state, by the way, this is a true thing, which state would be the most difficult to govern. Like those are the things that Jared likes to talk about. It kind of gives you a window into who he is and what he's all about. But After having that conversation, I asked him about his ankle, and he told me that he was ready to go and he was playing. So before that was released by the Cavs, and before that made its way to X, formerly Twitter, it was given to all of the Cavs insiders on subtext. And it's that kind of stuff that allow you to be part of the community, while at the same time, you can interact with me and you can interact with Ethan. You can ask us questions, you can give your own observations, and we'll send you back a text to your phone. So we have that kind of dialogue going. And tomorrow, you guys will get a message from more than likely me about the next episode of the podcast because you know you love it. Hey, Chris, we air that on every Tuesday. So we record it on Monday for y'all. And to give us your questions, you can sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy. But we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from Chris and myself. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. I mentioned Donovan Mitchell briefly earlier in this podcast, but he's had a busy month and it has just begun. Donovan was named Eastern Conference Player of the Month for January. He's just the second Cavs player in franchise history to earn the honor. The other, who we've mentioned multiple times in this podcast, LeBron James. It's Mitchell's second time winning the award in his career and first as a member of the Cavs. He also earned his fifth straight All-Star spot, being named an All-Star Reserve for the 2024 All-Star Game in Indianapolis. Donovan learned during pregame warm-ups in Memphis, had a congratulatory dap and hug from his longtime trainer, and proceeded to go back to work. Can you give some more insight into the conversations you had with Donovan about these moments, Chris? About which moments? About when Donovan found out about making the All-Star game, because I know that was more of a momentous occasion for him. Yeah, so we'll start there. Obviously, it's a big deal. And, and Donovan has been very upfront about this. He wants to win championships. Winning is the thing that matters most to him. But all great players want to get acknowledged. All great players want individual accolades as well. And Donovan Mitchell wanted to start the All-Star game. Donovan Mitchell believes he should have been starting the All-Star game. By the way, what did uh, Damian Lillard do tonight? That is a travesty that Donovan is not starting the All-Star game. He is more than worthy of it. And I think there is part of Donovan that does not love the kind of attention and the kind of praise that Jalen Brunson continues to get. So that's something to pay attention to as we continue to go forward, especially if these two teams, the Cavs and the Knicks, clash in the first round of the playoffs once again. But him getting to the All-Star game, even though it's not as a starter, is obviously something that is meaningful to him. It's a goal that he sets out to try and achieve, and it's a reward for him doing the right things on and off the court. And for him, it's a reward for the way that the Cavs have played without two very, very important pieces. Like if they didn't 
climb the standings the way that they did without Darius and Evan if they were toward the bottom of the Eastern Conference or the bottom of the playoff picture in the Eastern Conference, then maybe he doesn't get the same level of recognition. Maybe that's something that held somebody, for example, like Trey Young back. So it is an individual accomplishment, and it's something that Donovan wants, and it's something that he earned. But he also said, and he was quick to point this out, that a big part of of why he's going to the All-Star game is the way that Jared Allen has stepped up, the way that Sam Merrill has stepped up, the way that other guys on this team have stepped up and allowed the Cavs to climb the standings in the Eastern Conference and, and get that level of notoriety. And Chris mentioned what Damian Lillard did tonight. And we're going to get into the Eastern Conference very shortly. But Donovan Mitchell was not selected as an all-star starter, and Damian Lillard was. Damian Lillard, in 38 minutes in the Bucks' loss to the Utah Jazz, 123-108 to on Sunday, had 12 points on 5 of 18 from the field and 1 of 8 from three-point range, with six assists, one steal, somehow two blocks, three turnovers, and a plus-minus of negative 21. And speaking of the Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks have been coached by Doc Rivers in four games when this episode will air, and he's been named the Eastern Conference All-Stars head coach after Adrian Griffin, who led the team for the majority of the season, was just fired not too long ago. Doc Rivers wasn't even coaching, and now he's been given the opportunity to coach the All-Stars. I personally think it's unfair. And I understand he plans on giving the ring and the extra money that he gets from the All-Star events to Adrian Griffin. But I think that there should be exceptions to rules in situations like these. I think J.B. Bickerstaff has earned the opportunity to coach the All-Stars. And I also think that J.B. should be getting more recognition for the job he's done with the Cavs and the accountability he's taken with returning players and understanding that he's got to do an even better job with rotations and lineups to continue their success and not let the reacclimating period slow them down. And Doc Rivers, if I'm not mistaken, with the Bucks in the last four games is one in three. So that whole the whole Adrian Griffin firing because the offense wasn't working defense because the defense was terrible. yeah because the defense wasn't working as a high level and now they haven't been able to get more than one win in the last four games. It feels like this could be a recipe for disaster for when it comes to Doc Rivers, and he's getting the wrong kind of press during the situation in my eyes. What are your thoughts on all of this, Chris? It's just weird that he's going to be coaching the all-star game for the Eastern Conference. It's hard to say a guy hasn't earned it, but like he hasn't earned it. He hasn't done anything to earn it. He's picked up for Adrian Griffin. He's taken over an immensely talented team that I think a lot of coaches around the NBA would sign up to try and navigate to a championship. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah, stress comes with that. Yeah, like expectations can wear on you. All of those things are true, but you get an opportunity to coach a team that has legitimate championship aspirations, and you get an opportunity to coach a team that you know has as much talent as any other team around the NBA. So, like, I just don't know what he's going to do for this team that is different than what a lot of other qualified coaches would be able to do as well. 
I'm actually curious how he's going to handle all of this. And here's the other thing, Ethan. Like, he's kind of now looked a little bit as the savior. He's the guy that took over for Adrian Griffin. He's the guy who's supposed to do things differently. He's the guy who's supposed to allow this team that was not achieving at the level that obviously ownership and management wanted it to. And I mean, if he doesn't succeed, if he doesn't take this team to at least the conference finals, it's not like they're going to blame Giannis, right? Are they going to blame Dame? I doubt it. Like, it's not a situation where you necessarily start pointing the fingers at the players or the roster because you feel like that's good enough. You know what I mean? Like, if it doesn't happen, like, wait a minute, you were supposed to be different than Adrian Griffin. You were supposed to allow us to take the next step. Coaching was the thing that was supposedly holding us back through the first 40 games of the season or whatever it was. And if it doesn't happen, like, I'm curious to see how quick one, the organization is going to turn on him, and two, how quick the fan base is going to turn on him as well. But to your bigger point about like him coaching the All-Star game, obviously like it's not a career-defining thing or anything along those lines, but it is a talking point, and he definitely hasn't earned the right to do that. So it's going to be bizarre that he's going to be out there doing that. He picked the right destination. We'll put it that way. Yeah, and it's just like, how do you justify making the decision with Adrian Griffin when they were better percentage-wise and win percentage as of now than they were? And if the defense doesn't better itself, we mentioned it when the hiring or the reporting was happening that it was going to go down, that Doc Rivers is not that much better of an X's and O's guy. Like, he's more astute to handling the... <laughs> the higher level players so maybe that makes him a good fit for the all-star game but <laughs> that's the only thing that I can point to because now we got to look at the eastern conference and it's like the Cavs and the Bucks have the same winning percentage and the Cavs are in third place a half game behind the Bucks with Boston obviously leading the way and kind of separating themselves a little bit and then you look and you have the Knicks in fourth, half a game behind the Cavs, and the 76ers, who were in the third slot for majority of the season, have dropped to fifth in the conference. And it was also announced on Sunday that Joel Embiid will be undergoing surgery for his meniscus with a return time to be determined after the procedure. This, to me, means that if he's going to come back at all this season, it'll be in the playoffs. In Philly led by Tyrese Maxey, will need to stay above the 7th seed to avoid the play-in tournament to do so and even have a shot at seeing Joel Embiid again this season. Well, the biggest thing from the Cavs' perspective about this whole situation with Joel Embiid is that, okay, there are two aspects of this, and both pertain to, to their chances in the playoffs. A lot of people are going to look at it and say, well, like, you've got to beat good teams in the playoffs regardless. And that's true right? The majority of the teams that make the playoffs are good quality teams that have earned it. But the path is different based on the level of competition. We can all admit that. There are levels to this sort of thing. So last year for the Cavs, if they would have, you know, played against the Brooklyn Nets in the first round of the playoffs, as opposed to the New York Knicks, the conversation surrounding the Cavs season would have been different. The conversation about the Cavs in the playoffs would have been different too because they probably, more than likely, would have won that series. 
and because the matchup would have been more favorable for them. So like if we're looking for the best way for the Cavs to advance out of the first round of the playoffs, which is what this organization ultimately wants to do, that's the first step for this organization. Then we can start talking about getting to the conference finals or NBA finals down the road. But they need to get out of the first round of the playoffs. And if they don't get out of the first round of the playoffs, changes could happen within this organization. So if they're going to, then avoiding New York would probably be beneficial for them, (laughs) right? And if we're talking about bigger picture for the Cavs, advancing as far as possible in the playoffs, avoiding the Celtics, who are clearly the best team in the Eastern Conference and maybe the best team in the entire NBA, avoiding playing the Celtics until the conference finals would also be beneficial for the Cavs. Because again, Ethan, yeah, you have to play good teams in the playoffs, but you want to play lesser teams in each round. So if you don't have to play the Celtics until the conference finals, your chances of getting to the conference finals are obviously going to be better. And if you don't have to play the Knicks in the first round of the playoffs, your chances of getting out of the first round of the playoffs are even better. That doesn't mean that the Cavs are scared of the Knicks or scared of the Celtics or anything along those lines, but I'm looking at it logically, as logically as I possibly can. So, you know, coming into this year, it was almost a foregone conclusion that the Celtics were going to be number one and the Bucks were going to be number two and the 76ers were going to be number three in whatever order you wanted to put those teams. The first three playoff slots were all but decided. And then it was like, okay, who's battling for four, five, and six? And how do those teams line up? Who gets four? Who gets five? Who gets six? 76ers are going to have a really, really difficult time, as you mentioned, not only staying in the top six, but their chances of being the three seed now in the East, given the way that the Cavs have played, given the schedule for the Cavs moving forward, and given the way that the Knicks have played since getting OG and Anobi, the 76ers' chances of maintaining the number three seed in the Eastern Conference seem highly unlikely. So that creates an opportunity for somebody, Cleveland, New York, maybe Indiana, to get the spot in the bracket that avoids playing the Celtics until it's absolutely necessary. And if the Cavs were to get the three seed and the Knicks are the four seed, now all of a sudden the Cavs' first round playoff matchup is Indiana instead of the Knicks. And no offense to Indiana, Tyrese Halliburton's great. The Pacers' offense has been spectacular. The addition of Pascal Siakam was a big deal for the Pacers. But if you're asking me right now, Chris, for the Cavs, better chance at getting out of the first round if they play the Knicks or the Pacers, it's a no-brainer. No, I agree. And I think it'd be really funny, Chris. Like, you'd make this big move to send Drew Holiday to the Boston Celtics after he helped you win a championship as soon as he got to you, that if he goes to the Celtics and they end up going automatically to the NBA Finals, it's like, how many wrong decisions can the Milwaukee Bucks make before the eyes turn to the management rather than the players, the coaches, or anybody else? I do want to say, though, like, I don't think it's fair right now to characterize Doc Rivers as the wrong move or the wrong decision, right? Because I think there is something to be said, and I've got my questions about Doc as a tactician, and I've got my questions about really, is he the quote unquote, missing piece that is going to allow this team to take the next step? Like, is he the problem solver that the Bucks need in a seven game series? 
Those are legitimate questions when it comes to Doc. But the thing that I think is hard to argue is that the players on the Bucks did not believe in Adrian Griffin. And beyond the record, which was going to be great no matter who the coach was going to be because of all of the talent in the world that the Bucks had. Like, I think at some point, an organization owes it to themselves to look beyond the standings, look beyond the win-loss record, look beyond some of the numbers and say, is this working the way that we expect it to work? Is there something that is keeping us from reaching our full potential? And it doesn't mean that like Adrian Griffin was a bad X's and O's coach, but it just felt like a group of players that didn't buy in to what he was trying to tell them. And it felt like a group of players that did not believe he was the right guy for them. And if players don't believe in you to that level and they aren't fully engaged or fully committed to your principles, to your schemes, if they look at you with side eyes every time you try and pull them in the huddle, like that is eventually going to manifest itself. And I think it was good for the Bucks or any organization to be proactive about something like that, especially when you have a ticking clock and it's a championship or bust type season and you just pulled off a blockbuster trade for Damian Lillard. Whether it was the right decision or not for the Bucks, they made that trade. They gave up everything they did for Dame. And if they felt like somebody was going to get these guys to buy in more, listen more, believe more, that's something that could be beneficial even with the flaws that I think Doc has as a coach. I think the Adrian Griffin move was always justifiable. And and maybe it's easier for me to justify it because I went through it with the whole David Blatt to Ty Lu thing. And I could see how the Cavs just didn't have a level of belief in David Blatt and, and something within a talented team was clearly missing. And once they made that move, now Ty Lu is a better coach, better tactician than Doc Rivers, in my opinion. But when they made that move, you could sense something different in the organization. And that still could happen with the Bucks moving forward. And I think we'll have to keep an eye on the Bucks' decisions and how the rest of their season pans out, especially with the Cavs playing the Kings tomorrow and having the opportunity to jump into that second spot in the Eastern Conference with a win, especially with Milwaukee not playing tomorrow and playing on Tuesday. Shoot, man, if the Cavs can get to the number two seed in the Eastern Conference, Ethan, and their first round playoff opponent is the seven seed in the Eastern Conference, you know, that's quite different unless it's the Heat. You know, they got tiger blood and all that kind of stuff. They're not a team that you really want to see in a playoff environment. But nonetheless, chances are you would be playing the seven seed that would be a little bit weaker than the four seed, the five seed, the six seed, at least general reason would tell you that that's the case and then maybe that's the difference for the Cavs in getting out of the first round of the playoffs and not getting out of the first round of the playoffs and with that being said that'll wrap up today's episode of the wine and gold talk podcast but remember to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and me by subscribing to subtext sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page if you don't like it that's fine All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up, stick around, because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from me and Chris. This isn't just our podcast, it's your podcast, and the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all be safe, we out.